6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapter 52. love. You think the opposite is hate, you're wrong. What's the opposite of love? Fear. You got it. See, that's useful, isn't it? So sometimes it helps us as we make our associative maps, these, these conceptions of these, these idioms we call words or graphs or whatever, it's sometimes to understand opposites. So if you recognize that Mystery Babylon, whatever she is, is setting herself in contrast to Israel, God's chosen. Now, There's something else that's kind of interesting. Maybe this is the time to sort of since we're, we're not going to go through, we have a choice. We go through Lamentations verse by verse, but that would be long and tedious. I'm going to leave that to you for the summer. Those of you are inclined to sit under a tree and read Lamentations. It'll take care of itself. You might find it interesting to notice some of the instructions to the priests in the Torah. Bear with me and travel with me as I fake it here to try to remember where I find this stuff, because I haven't got this in my notes. In the book, in the Torah, there is instructions, our instructions, and among those instructions are instructions for the priests. In the Torah, Leviticus, there are instructions to the priests. Here we go, I want 21. Leviticus chapter 21 has some instructions concerning the priests, and I find verse 14 fascinating. A widow and a divorced woman, a profane and harlot, these shall he not take, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as his wife. And I find it very, very interesting that uh, our high priest is described, obviously metaphorically, but described by Paul as taking to him the church, what? As the adulterous, widowed, divorced wife of Jehovah? That's the image of Israel in the Old Testament. No. What is... The high priest, our high priest, take to him to wife, the virgin bride. Ephesians elsewhere, Paul uses that idiom very articulately of the church. So that's kind of interesting. Now, as long as we're in Leviticus, and this will give me an excuse to touch base on something that's way out. See, the good, the 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 the, the, the bad news is I'm not going to carry you through all the other parts of Lamentations. We're going to take a break. We're through with Jeremiah. But I, I'll, we'll put a little appendix of our own on the study of Jeremiah by looking at it in a very obscure prophecy. Hold yourself in Leviticus here. I'm going to come back to it. Um, before I give you the solution, or one possible solution, let me show you the problem. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 4. And I'd like to just touch upon a prophecy in Ezekiel for which I'm not giving you a clear answer. I'm going to give you an incomplete, provocative possibility. With a mature group like this, I indulge in wanderings out in left field. And um, some of you say, Boaz's field is on the right. You can glean there. You don't go out in left field. That's somebody else's. Well, that's probably correct. 
On the top of your notepad, before you go any further, you put Acts 1711, which says, don't believe anything Chuck Missler tells you, especially tonight, because we're going some wild stuff. In the book of Ezekiel, there is a strange prophecy that really has not had, in my opinion, any adequate explanation. Uh, Ezekiel was frequently given an object lesson to demonstrate to the people. Ezekiel was professionally trained as a priest in the office as a prophet. He was a public figure. He was told to do some strange things as a way of communicating to the people. And you might enjoy just to review. I think most of you were in the Ezekiel study, but we'll review chapter 4, verse... In Ezekiel chapter 4, it says, uh, God says to Ezekiel, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. So apparently he, art, art, you know, artists something on this tile, make meaning Jerusalem. And it says, And lay siege against it, and build a fort against it, and cast a mound against it, and set a camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take unto thee an iron pan, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it, and it shall be sieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it, and this shall be a sign unto the house of Israel. He was playing with soldiers. You know, some place, presumably in some public spot, he went out there and got his little tile and made his little mound and did his little thing. People probably thought he was nuts, right? We don't know how it was handled, whether this was done some way so they understood that there was a ceremonial demonstration, or whether he did this just to attract attention and let them all wonder, you know. That's not clear, but he did somehow go through this physical expression as a mechanism to communicate an object lesson to the people. Verse 4. Now he's told to do something else. Lie also upon thy left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have, I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on the right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year." Therefore shalt thou set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem, thine arms shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it. Behold, I will lay the cords upon thee, and thou shalt not turn from one side to the other till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. Now, what we're not quite sure how he actually did this. We don't know if he just actually laid out there in the plaza with his little toys, uh, for you know, with the pan and the tile and all this stuff, for 300 years. Well, it's actually 390 plus 40. It's a total of 430 days. That's a year plus. That's a lot of days. Now, yeah, you get, uh, you get some saddles. Or the, the, the presumption is, but we don't know, the presumption is that he did it maybe for a few hours a day, ceremonially. And, for, and, that, and that's quite a while. This is quite an event. He makes his point. He's getting it across to them. Now, so much for the thing, I won't dwell on this, that's the study of Ezekiel. But the real problem is we don't know what, you say, okay, there's, there is, uh, you know, uh, 390 days plus 40 days, that's 430 days. And they don't fit anything. Now also here, it's the only place in the Bible that I'm aware of where it's a day for a year. That's a principle you'll often hear people talk about, but there's no other place in the Bible where it fits to my knowledge but here. And here God expressly says it's a year for a day, or a day for a year. Now, so there are apparently 490 years 
that there's going to be uh, judgment you know, uh, upon Israel for iniquity. Now, as you go through history and you study your Bible and get out your charts and mess around with this thing, you'll discover it doesn't fit anything. You know, it doesn't... Yeah. Now, Israel is more than Judah because they were in sin longer. But even if you play with that one, it doesn't really seem to fit comfortably. Judah was sinning for more than 40 years, although it was roughly 40 years that Jeremiah had his ministry, so that maybe fits, but Israel's even more complicated question. But more importantly, for, four, for the combination, for, four, for 390 plus 40, that is, for 430 years, we've got to somehow fit this. Well, one author I came across years ago pointed out, felt that, gee, well, 70 of the 430 years, we can account for the Babylonian captivity. So 70 is no problem. We take 70 from 430, that leaves 360 left over, right? Now, this character pointed out, I felt erroneously, or kind of far-fetched, he took us, he took, a, took went into Leviticus. In fact, he didn't exactly say where he got this in Leviticus, but after prowling through Leviticus, I assume that what he was referring to is, I think it's chapter 25, 26. By the time you get to chapter 26, all kinds of rules have been let down, all kinds of instructions. And then we get from verse 3 of chapter 26 on, we have conditions of blessing and conditions of judgment. And uh, in, in verse 3 on, he says, if you walk in my statutes, keep my commandments, and all these neat things are going to happen. And he lays that all out. We get about to verse 14, and get, you start getting warnings. In other words, the good news and bad news. You keep my commandments, all these good things are going to happen. If you don't, Verse 14, I will, but if you will not hearken unto me and will not do these commandments, if you will despise my statutes and your soul abhor mine ordinances and shall, will not do all my commandments, but ye break my covenant, I will also do this unto you. And then he goes on to describe the bad news. I'll appoint you over you terror, consumption, the burning fever, it consume the eye, all these grim things are going to happen, right? It's good news. You know, now, we get to verse 18, he says, and if ye will not... Yet, for all this, hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. When you get down to verse 21, he says the same thing again. If you will walk contrary unto me and will not hearken to me, I will bring you seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Right? When you get to verse 24, he says, when you walk contrary to you, I will punish you yet seven times more for your sins. And he says this a fourth time in verse 28. Uh, uh, then I will walk contrary unto you, and for I, even I, will chastise you seven times more uh, for, you know, for your sins. Now, kind of interesting to me, because that I think the, I felt the guy was kind of reaching stuff. And now his argument was this particular writer said, "Gee, now if you take if you, if you take seven times, we have of the four hundred and thirty years, seventy are accounted for the Babylonian captivity. Terrific." What about the other 360? Well, if you multiply that by seven, you get 2,520 years, which is approximately the time that Israel has been dispersed throughout the world. You see, that, the Babylon captivity is over roughly the 500 years before Christ, has been roughly 2,000 years, and isn't that terrific? Well, I happen to remember all this. I didn't buy it for lots of reasons. First of all, I thought this was a little far-fetched, and I didn't, hadn't really found the spot yet, but the whole thing sounded a little... Peculiar. You read all the, you know, one thing, you, there's, there's all kinds of characters, all kinds of things. And I guess I'd become one. Um, but what I did figure is that if, I didn't like this business about, so I thought, gee, that doesn't really quite work. And furthermore, most people who study prophecy all get in this Daniel 70 weeks and they understand the 360-day years, and that makes that all work when you realize that. 
but they don't apply it anywhere else. So I said to myself, gee, 25, if you take, if you take 2,520 years, if you take the 360-day year, you know, the 360 years and multiply that by 7, you get 2,520. That part's easy. I follow that logic. But that, if I figure that they are Babylonian, lunar, solar, or Hebrew years, those are 360-day years, just like Sir Robert Anderson used in the 70 week his famous study. So if you multiply 2,520 times 360, you end up with 907,200 days. Isn't that exciting? Well, now, you say to yourself, I wonder what that is in in um, Roman years, or the, the, the sidereal years, the 365 and a quarter days. So what you do there is you, it turns out that if you take 2,484 years and 365 days, you get 906,660. But what you've done by then is that you've got to take away leap day, the days for the leap years. And if you take one for every four years, you come out to 621, but you, what you may forget is that you have to subtract for the centuries because they're not leap years, even though they're divisible by four. So you got to subtract 24 from that. So you take 621 divided by, subtract 24, you end up with 597 days uh, short. So when you take 906,660 and add the 597, you get to 907,257. Or to put it another way, if you take 2,484 years, you have 57 days too many. So it doesn't, in other words, you've just overshot it by three days less of two months. Say, okay, now, what, oh, great, Chuck. What do I do with that piece of information? Well, I'm not sure. But let me try something on you. I said to myself, well, that's kind of interesting. I now have 2,484 years, and let's set aside the months for the moment. Then I got a problem, okay? The whole thing hangs on this business of when does, you know, the servitude and what do I do? Do I use the servitude of the nations? About this time, I also came to the insight that the servitude of the nation, which is prophesied to be 70 years, and the desolations of Jerusalem, also prophesied to be 70 years, are not coterminous. That is, they don't start and stop at the same place. And I said, gee, I wonder what this thing fits. So the servitude of the nation uh, begins when the nation became subservient to Nebuchadnezzar, his first siege. When was that? 606 B.C. Well, 606 B.C., the first siege, 70 years from that brings you to 536 B.C., the year that, in Ezra chapter 1, Cyrus's decree frees them. 2,484 years from 536 B.C. brings you to 1948. Bingo. The nation Israel ceased to exist 606 B.C., 70 plus 2,484 brings you to 1948. Now, what I was hoping to do, but I have not finished my study, it's really complicated. I can't nail it down because these 57 days, it all hangs on details of the siege and some other things. It's my instinct. I get the summer of 848, but I, I believe that when I'm through, the Lord is going to show me, if, I, if this is correct, it may be wrong, and if so, he'll show me that too, I hope. That the May 14th, 48, I think it'll come out to the day. But see, I need a lot more better data on some other things. There's some calendar reforms involved. You know, there was the, um, the, the it's, it, when you start getting to calendar days, it's complicated in terms of the calendar changes. So I, I'm going through all that because uh, to try and nail it down. But clearly, though, we're close. But that could be kind of contrived. I say to myself, well, what happens if we talk about the desolations of Jerusalem? The desolations of Jerusalem. We read in Jeremiah 52, 
with the Zedekiah thing and so forth. That's 587 B.C. Now, the 70 years from that brings you to 517, 2,484 years on 517 brings you to 1967, when Jerusalem was under the Star of David for the first time since the days of Nebuchadnezzar. Kind of interesting. Coincidence, of course. Now, the thing I'm trying to also sort through, I think 517, you know, I sort of had expected that to somehow link to the decree by Artaxerxes Langemanus in 445 B.C., and it's complicated, because actually when you get into the nits and nats of this, in 536 B.C., when under, in Ezra chapter 1, the first six, first six chapters of, of Ezra, there's a return under Zerubbabel, which is the first return under Cyrus's decree in 536 B.C. Then there's a 50-year interval between chapter 6 and chapter 7, during which the period of Esther and all of that takes place. And Ezra shows up in chapter 7 of the book of Ezra, and uh, that's about now we're, now we're at about 455 B.C., some 50 years later. It's 10 years after that that Nehemiah is a cupbearer before the king. By now we're in the reign of Artaxerxes Langemanus, and he's upset because they, it, there isn't the city wall being built, and he gets the authority to rebuild the wall, and that triggers the Daniel 70-week prophecy. I asked myself, well, what does 517 have to do with anything? It turns out that if you look carefully at uh, in Ezra, that um, there's a lot of dispute about authorities. And by the time you get to um, some roughly 20 years have gone by, Cyrus has authorized them to go back. They're trying to rebuild the temple, having all kinds of hassles and things. That they go to Darius, Darius as the successor. And you'll find in... Um, one of the chapters of Ezra there, I think it's chapter 6 of Ezra, he goes and searches the vaults and does indeed find the original authority by Cyrus and reconfirms it to allow the, them to have authority to, to be free of harassment there in the city of Jerusalem. They don't have the authority to build the wall yet. That comes later under Artaxerxes, and that's the thing that triggers Daniel 70 weeks. So there's some homework to be done here, namely pinning down the exact day, and there's homework here to really understand the background of some of these decrees. But it's interesting, no matter how you slice it, setting those issues aside, if you take the 70 years and 2,484 years, which are the 25, 28, but in the 360 conversion, when you take those and lay those out, you do get from 606 B.C. to 1948, that is the servitude of the nation until the reestablishment of the nation of Israel, and if you take the desolations of Jerusalem from 587, it brings you to 1967, which is, of course, uh, biblically significant because of the Six-Day War presenting, allowing Jerusalem for the first time since the crucifixion of Christ to be in the hands of Israel. Kind of interesting, I think. So I um, share that with you as a as a provocative conclusion on um, the book of Jeremiah. And uh, I'm out of gas. So uh, uh, we finished the study. It's been a tough study for me. I think those of you that have been with me a lot of, uh, in a lot of these studies, I think they recognize that. You know, it's easy to, to run through the book of Revelation or Ezekiel 38 or these prophecy things because they got some gee whiz things. It's also easy to get through things like the book of Romans and stuff where there's good doctrine and there's plenty of illumination so you can dig into it. It's been very, very difficult for me emotionally to deal with the book of Jeremiah because uh, somehow I just have been burdened with such painful parallels between what Jeremiah saw in Judah and what I personally see as I traffic among the military, as I traffic to and from Washington with the Senate and the Congress, as I see the predicament of this country economically, 
as I see the predicament of this country technologically, as I see the predicament of this country spiritually or and ecclesiastically, and I'm having different issues. I'm speaking of different issues. Spiritually, we're in real, real trouble. Ecclesiastically, the leadership that of this country spiritually is in large measure bankrupt or worse. And militarily, we're facing the most powerful nation in the world, the Soviet Union's numbers. If you do any homework at all, it's staggering. And those of you that are interested in this, by the way, I'll give you I'll give you an errand. You can run. You can write the superintendent of documents a letter. Superintendent of documents, Washington, D.C., and send them $7.50, and they will and ask for Soviet military power, 1987. The Department of Defense prepares this every year. It's available to the public. It's unclassified, but it'll blow you away. It has a, it has this very slick document. It's got pictures and diagrams and numbers and so forth, but it's a portrayal, a summary of what we know uh, that is in the public domain on the Soviet Union situation. And has, like in the last 10 years, we've built about 16,000 surface-to-air missiles. The Soviet Union has manufactured 140,000 of them. During the last 10 years, we've manufactured 7,000 tanks. The Soviet Union has manufactured 30,000 tanks. The Soviet Union now has the largest navy in the world, incidentally with technology that's every bit as good, if not better than ours. The uh, Soviet space shuttle carries a payload three times of what ours does, and it works. They have a spent in 1986 launched their second gener or third generation space station. The Mir is up there now, um, and on it goes. As you read that, you uh, can draw your own conclusions about where we really are objectively militarily, financially. We are not only a debtor nation for the first time in recent history; we're now the largest debtor nation in the world. So then, an awful lot of people are getting concerned about our ability to pay our debts. Besides us, who have to pay them. And if you want to do the arithmetic, you'll discover that each of you and your children, I have a debt of somewhere between two hundred and five hundred thousand dollars to pay off sometime. If you divide the federal deficit by the population, you get some interesting numbers. Uh, look at the trade deficit; it's enormous. And you can go through whether you're looking at a corporate America, the fiscal, financial, the monetary system, the economic system. They're different. If you don't believe that, if I used to, by the way, I, I used to always believe that our dollar is as strong as our, our economy. You know, I didn't. Get good, hung up with all this monetary. Someone said to me, "Gee, Chuck, are you willing to pledge your asset to back the government's currency?" Oh no. Well, then they're not the same thing, are they? The government's currency and the national economy are two different things. The only place that they're the same is when you have the government running all the business, owning all of this. So anyway, our economic predicament, our fiscal predicament, our, our economic, our, our our monetary predicament, our corporate competitiveness, our technologies, our military—you can take every sector. And a good, honest, objective assessment says we're in real trouble. But obviously, you get to the ecclesiastic picture, God's judgment starts where? In his own house. And look around at the, this fiasco, this, this charade, this comedy that gives the enemies of God an opportunity to blaspheme. It's tragic. You look at the pestilences that God is sending, and they're, and they're provocative. So as you look at all of this, it's hard not to identify deeply with Jeremiah's burden for Judah. And uh, as I've said to you before, that uh, the good news is, is our prophetic picture of the United States is not as crisp as Jeremiah's was. There's nothing in prophecy that denies us the opportunity for a revival. And I don't. Uh, and the good news is, is I think that we can save this country, or at least extend this period of peace that we have enjoyed for our children and our grandchildren through prayer. I'm not too optimistic about ballot boxes these days. I think it's strictly prayer.
I think we'll stand for a closing word of prayer. So what are the issues? The issues aren't national. They are national. If the Lord leads you to pray for this country, praise God, by all means do it. But you and I, I think, have the primary concern with our own personal walk. We are, after all, not Democrats or Republicans. We're monarchists. We're looking for a coming king. Our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. We are but wanderers. Now, that doesn't deny us the doesn't deny us the validity of wanting to make this as free and as constructive as possible, but our real focus is on Him and where we're headed. And what He cares about is your personal walk. Do these studies, does your, do your appetites in the Word, draw you closer to Him. I would pray deeply that you increase your appetite for the things of God, for a study of His Word. Take the summer and its changed routine to pick something that the Holy Spirit puts in your heart and dig into it. If you've got a little budget, indulge it in some helps. Go to a well-stocked Christian bookstore and pick up a Strong's Concordance if you don't have one, or a Young's, whichever you prefer. And uh, if there's a book of the Bible that you really want to dig into, dig into it. There's a, a good Christian bookstore has all kinds of things that will be compliments to your study. I encourage that. Some people say, gee, you should read the Bible. Well, yeah, you should. But I also personally in my life have been enormously blessed by... Um, standing on the shoulders of those of you that have gone before us in terms of their insights and knowledge and background. There they are helpful. I'm a very self-indulgent guy, and the way you really see that isn't the car I drive, it's when you go, if you visit my home and see my library. That's one of the most, the most incredible blessings the Lord has allowed me. It has a very extensive library built over many, many years. And I encourage you, if you have a collective instinct, to indulge yourself book by book and build yourself some helps and increasing. You know, make, it, make it your hobby. Make it your commitment. Make it your special interest, and uh, seek the Lord in every which way. And the summer opportunity where we have sort of a changed routine, there's a little atmosphere, there's a little different cultural atmosphere between now and fall, is to roll up your sleeves and get into some special commitment in seeking the Lord through fellowship, through prayer, and indeed through a study of His Word. Let's bow our hearts. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.